camera clear or should I focus it a bit? Yep, it's clear. Alhamdulillah. Huh? It's okay. clear. I can, I can, hang on. I can, now it's blurry. Now it's clear. Okay. Yeah, okay, let's do it. Okay, Bismillah rahman rahim I'm just going to double check if the stream is live. Anyone's viewing this, um, if anyone's viewing this on YouTube, please do let us know, inshallah, in the comment section if the sounds are okay. Uh, if the sound is okay from both our sides, inshallah. Any of the listeners, inshallah. We've got 14 listeners so far. Alhamdulillah. Let's see. Sounds okay? Yes, we are live. Okay. Barakallah fikum, barakallah fikum. Okay. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam. Ala nabiyyil kareem wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu Dear respected viewers uh, on our podcast and our Roots Conversations podcast We have on our episode 11 uh, None other than doctor I wouldn't call him doctor, sorry But doc, uh, you know, brother Babar Ahmed Sorry about that, I don't know, not a doctor really But mashallah, you, you're a doctor in terms of your experience for sure uh, And uh, Babar Ahmed was the longest serving prisoner To be held without trial in the UK uh, Before being extradited to the US uh, for 11 years, uh, that was the case. He was uh, he would break his fast in Ramadan alone in his prison cell. A tray of cold food would sit on his, in his cell for hours, which he would eat after a long day of fasting. It's a very interesting story. And uh, with a very short amount of time uh, within this podcast session, it'll be interesting to see if we can fit all the questions in. But um, let's let's see if inshallah we can try our best. Um, so Baba Rahman, how are you doing today? You okay? Alhamdulillah, yes, sir. Doing, uh, doing well. Just had a very busy day, and um, I just, um, yeah, I was, I was coaxed. I don't like doing these things. So I was uh, coaxed by, uh, I think, one of your <laughs> colleagues, Hisham, and because he's, uh, he's like a relative, so uh, it gets a bit awkward because then they start, you know, then it's like the emotional <laughs> stuff, and I can't really say no, and then they start. I mean, he, he didn't do none of that. I mean, he's. he's uh, so, so he, he's the reason I'm talking to you about that. I, I tried hard to get, to get out of it. <laughs> appreciate the honesty. I appreciate the honesty. Okay. Um, alhamdulillah. Um, inshallah, nonetheless, I, I do I do definitely see benefit in this for sure. Because um, there's a few things, obviously, a few parallels that we can obviously talk about. The fact that we've been in isolation for many of us uh, listening to the podcast have been living in isolation because of COVID, because of lockdown. And uh, Ramadan was in lockdown last Ramadan. This, this Ramadan, there is opportunity for us to attend the masjid for some people. Um, but even then, it's a stretch. So with the fact that you've been living in, you were in prison for 11 years. And I believe that was 11 Ramadans as well? Uh, yes. So this is a very interesting, you know, we can segue to that question straight away in terms of subhanAllah. Like, you know, what was your routine like? How did you do Ramadan in prison? If they don't be asking, inshallah. So it was... Um... In 11 years, I went to 10 different prisons and um, the, in 10 different prisons in two countries. The routine was obviously different um, in each of the prisons that I went to. So in the UK, there was typically, there may have been, you were out of your cell all day and then there may have been four or five hours uh, between when they locked your, locked your cell door for the night and uh, when they... Um, until when when the when sunset was when the fast opened so um what they would do is they would give us like a, a steel box and in there was your hot food and it would stay there and you'd open it at nine o'clock whenever it was by yourself in your cell and you'd open it and you'd eat it and it would it was quite remarkable it would stay warm um in america it was uh, different in the i spent uh, two years in uh, complete isolation in a supermax prison I was on during legal visits all day and uh, what would happen is that the standard food that would come uh, in the slot, uh, the officers would bring the food uh, in, in the morning or at lunchtime or in the evening and I would just uh, put it on the side, um, whatever it was, so you'd have the cold porridge from the breakfast and you would have some other food from lunchtime and from dinner and I would leave that on my, um, on my table and um, and when I would eat it four or five hours later, then I would, um, yeah, then, then I would just uh, eat it four or five hours uh, later. Um, so Ramadan in prison, I mean, it, 
for some people it conjures up a an image of Ibn Taymiyyah sitting there reciting Quran day and night and, and you're reaching like, uh, you know, the pinnacle of spiritual excellence. Uh, the reality is quite different. So in America, I was working on my case, doing legal visits for like 12, 14 hours a day. Then in the evening, I would come back, open my fast alone, and um, then I'll pray whatever I was able to pray. Um, in the UK, it was uh, when I was in prison in the UK, it was um, it was a bit different. Um, so I, I would get up by myself in the morning. Uh, I remember one particular prison that we were in, we were not allowed to have alarm clocks. And so what would happen is that um, so this we, we would either wake each other up. There were some of the Muslim prisons in that uh, prisoners in that prison. We would either wake each other up or one of my fellow prisoners, he told me the technique to use the water trick. And what is the water trick? Basically, how do you get up at 3 a.m. if you are not um, if you don't have an alarm clock and there's no one to wake you up? And quite simply, you just drink lots of water. So if you estimate that if you drink like a, a big mug of water, so with me, if I drank a big mug of water in two hours, I have to get up and go to the toilet. Um, so if I need to get up in four hours time, then basically I'll drink half a mug of water and I would, I, I would uh, do it like that. Um, and uh, um, so, so those were like ways that, that I would uh, use to, uh, to get up for, um, uh, for, for Sahur. But other than that, the, the routines were different. In some Ramadans, I was able to, to do more and to recite more Quran when I had more time on my hands. And the others were quite, quite, uh, quite difficult and quite challenging. I remember one particular Ramadan, I was sharing a cell with a Muslim brother, and um, we were praying together, Tarawih prayers. And next to us was a prisoner who had been confined to his cell for punishment. And his friends were on the other wing, which is about 30 meters away. So throughout the whole time that we were praying, he was having a shouting conversation with his friends if 30 or 50 meters away in the other uh, wing. Um, and that in itself is, I mean, that happens in prison. That's not normal. But the type of stuff that he was talking about, he was talking about some pretty graphic, uh, explicit um uh, experiences and and in details and and it's embarrassing to listen to that in the in normal times but when you're you know in the last 10 days in tarawih when you're praying you're trying to concentrate and you're hearing this um so we we we, we tried our best mm, that sounds very um difficult i mean it would be equivalent to perhaps praying tarawih at home and the kids are screaming and crying. Uh, well, but uh, in, in the in the case of that, this is much more, this is much more worse, yeah. I would presume. I, um, I, I should hope your kids don't um, uh, don't um, you know shout explicit, <laughs> shouting explicit <laughs> things in the home. You know, I would have thought that stuff they'll they'll keep that for their social media lives. But I, would, I should hope that they wouldn't be doing that. Yeah, it, it was difficult. Yeah, there's some times that it was difficult. I mean, um, I mean, was it was was that quite common though? I mean, for tarawih prayers when you used to pray in in the prison, was it common for you not to have to have uh, to have peace and quiet? Was so, that was... yeah, that was common because like in the UK, prisoners are allowed to have uh, the stereo, so you'd have people listen to music. Um, so I would sort of come to an agreement with my uh, cellmates. Normally, it would cost me like a packet of biscuits or a packet of noodles or something. I would I would keep them happy. And I would request them that um, that I'm going to pray from this time to this time. So I'd appreciate they could keep the music down. And most cases they would uh, be obliging. In the US, in the supermax prison, it was um, that was much more noisier with banging and and uh, mentally ill inmates uh, shouting and, and screaming and, and sometimes swearing. And um, you have to. You know, you just have to have, have to try and make do in the circumstances. No point in me just sitting down and being feeling sad or crying about, oh, this. What am I going to do? You just have to make 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 do with it. And then somehow, I think with Allah would make it easy, and and I would just, you know, I I would just somehow just just be able to 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 get something out of it and to to enjoy it. 
I mean, in terms of the, you mentioned a story about how you used to wake up without a clock or an alarm. I mean, I'm guessing there would have been like a clock in the main hallway as your reference point, or is it just you're looking outside or how do you so, judge? So, um, yes and no. So some prisons, most prisons, you would love to have like a, a little watch so you would know what the time was. Um, in the supermax prison, there was a visible clock. The last prison that I went to before I actually came home, I think it was a detention center and I spent about, I spent about a month there. And the last few days before I came home, they put me into this, um, I think it's for security reasons because they're not, no one's meant to know what time I'm going out, which flight I'm taking to come home. Um, so they put me in the segregation unit of that detention center and I was in the corner where I could not see the clock. So outside, there's a slit window, which is three inches by 36 inches. And outside that window, I could just see a concrete yard. So I couldn't see the sky. Um, I could just see concrete yard and concrete walls. And inside, I couldn't see the clock. And there's this inmate who was like a couple of cells away that was mentally unwell. And he would just shout and scream all day and all night. So those few days, I didn't really sleep. But... So Ramadan, those few days, I think I did Ramadan there for about four days just before I came back. I had no idea what time sunrise was. I had no idea what uh, what time sunset was. My food would come. They would just put it there. And it made me think about uh, Ibn Taymiyyah when he was in prison and he didn't couldn't see the sun. So the only way he would know it's prayer time is when the guards, they brought his food. So I would estimate, um, I would sort of uh, estimate uh, when um, it would be. So I have no idea in those four days. But one thing I did not do is when I came back, I did not repeat those fasts. Because uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you are trying your best in the circumstances given to you, you know, I knew that, I mean, if, if, if it's sincerity or other reason that he may not have accepted, that's something else, you know, I pray he does. But I knew that the timings for those fasts were not one reason why, you know, my fast, those fasts would have been rejected. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, that, that was, that was very, very difficult because I just had no idea. I just kept looking outside at the yard. And when I thought it start, started to come a little bit bright, then I would, uh, um, I would just stop eating. And then same thing in the, in the evening. And in contrast to this, I mean, the first year after outside of prison, the first Ramadan that you, witnessed and you felt outside of prison i mean was it a huge a huge deal for you so yes and no so the community so ramadan has two aspects the first aspect is the uh, personal private aspect and the second is the community aspect a lot of people in lockdown last year they would have experienced the private personal aspect i know a lot of people said to me last year that this was the best ramadan they've ever had because for some reason it was just there was nothing else and it was just that personal time between you and allah um but the community aspect is something that i never got for 11 years uh, going for an iftar with my family uh, going to the masjid praying tarawih um going to um uh, opening the fast at a masjid there with family members and with others in my community uh, so that was something that was uh, very special and um it was something which um you know it it was it, that was very nice it was very special the personal side obviously you know the, the the when you're going through a hardship it's not just the prison thing but in a way when you're going through a trial or a hardship it could be a sickness it could be a financial problem it could be some sort of difficulty in a way you're sort of like in a prison because you're alone because only you are going through that. Uh, if you have a family member who has cancer, only you are going through that. Others might not be able to relate to it. So the, the your relationship with Allah during those periods is never going to be the same as when life for you is otherwise uh, normal. Interesting. It reminds me of um, Umar because he would, he would relish the opportunity to go through hardship or he would recognize or acknowledge that hardship was a median for growth it was a it was a it was a means for growth and so you acknowledging that does 
you know, it makes me really think perhaps we should reevaluate how we view life itself. Because when we go through life, through the hardships that life brings us, sometimes that exclusivity of that hardship pushes us to great limits, to great boundaries, getting close to Allah in our dhikr, in our private worship, in our du'as. And it does seem to me, at least from what you're saying, that's exactly what you felt, the transition between going from being in that specific cell and knowing that was a hardship that you had and then going to outside of prison and then seeing, you know, perhaps uh, ease and feeling that sense of ease. And um, it does, you know, it makes us really think, I think this this lockdown period for us to no level, it's not the same level of what you'd faced, but to what we can feel in this 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 difficult period of time is that, you know, we have been taking advantage of the benefits of a masjid, of the benefits of of being able to go to the masjid for prayers and to to be in a community and for that to be taken away has kind of made us feel as though we have to try harder so definitely I, I can see what you're trying to say there if you don't mind me inshallah ta'ala I would like to move on to the next segment where we talk about some of your dreams that you had witnessed or some of the dreams that you had seen while you were in prison and I, I can assume that was something that was you know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to you I mean if you don't mind inshallah ta'ala if you could relate some of that would be really beneficial so dreams I found was was like a a means of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um like consoling or comforting me during the most difficult moments. Um I was reciting Quran, I'm doing my prayers, I'm making more dua than I've ever made in my life, but it's not enough. I need um like I need a sign. I need something from Allah to tell me that, yeah, I'm still there and I'm still watching over you and I'm still listening. Um, I mean, even Ibrahim, السلام, when he was going through a difficult period in his life, he asked Allah for a sign. That story is mentioned in Surah Baqarah. He said, you know, show, show me how you give life to the death. And this is Ibrahim, السلام. this is, you know, you know, the father of all the prophets. Even he went through a difficult time and then he asked Allah for, for some comfort and, you know, just to just to bring some peace to his heart. So there were a number of dreams that I saw and um, and and these and just to say that people in hardships who go through other hardships, they will also have other experiences where they have seen things like this. It's not a reflection of your piety. Um, but it's a reflection of Allah's, you know, help and support to, uh, to you. So I saw a number of dreams. I saw dreams of things before they happened. I saw the tsunami before it happened. I saw the, um, I saw people's results. Like there were some gang members in one particular prison, and there were two cousins, both of them on murder charges. I saw that one of them is going to be acquitted and go home, and that's what happened three weeks later. Um, and then I saw another one of them was going to um, be—he's going to be convicted and, and you know and get life in prison. I saw uh, like world events, different things, uh, um, or family or things happening within the family, births and, and deaths and things like that. Um, so there's a number of—I think one of the most uh, remarkable dreams. Uh, I think I'll share one was in um, was in April April 2005. And I was in Belmarsh prison and I'd been moved from the prison that I was in and I'd been moved to Belmarsh prison, which was a far harsher prison than the one that I had just come from. It wasn't the harshest one that I ever went to, but it was harsher than the one that I just come from. I was in my cell for a lot of the time. I couldn't contact my family as such. Um, so I was going through a particularly uh, difficult uh, time there and I saw a dream where I saw paradise and I saw that my I'm in a like a, a prison and a door opens and I enter this it's like a whole new world and one of the things that I remember is seeing this white light so I saw this white light it wasn't like the yellowish uh, hue that you will get from the the sun it was a, a white light that you might get from a, a fluorescent light and um, so everywhere else white and it was like four-dimensional so it wasn't quite difficult to describe it like, like you could sort of walk in the air but it's like there's like a path as well so there's luscious green grass all around me and i remember i saw this like um i saw this 
palace, which the only way I can describe it looks like the, the Disney palace or the Disney towers. At the start of the Disney movies, you see this, like, uh, um, you see this Disney, um, you see this, like, castle, and it's got these tall, like, towers. And I saw something like that, and it was it was completely peaceful. And one of the things, again, I remember the light, because in, in paradise, there's, there's no sun or moon. So the light, it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, um, so I was there, I went there, and I remember I could feel the air on my face. It was like still, there was like a certain calmness. And I was waiting there. And then after a little while, someone said that, okay, you need to go back now through that door. And I was like, I remember feeling that, you know, why, why can't I stay? Like, like you know, I don't want to go back. I, this, this place is good. So um, I went back and then, then the dream ended. And from that time onwards until now, and it's been like 16 years since I had that dream. So whenever I read any verse in the Quran about paradise or I read any hadith about paradise, I believe it because I've seen it. I've not just seen it. I was there. I was, I was, I've actually been there. I've, I've, I've seen it, and I know it's real. So, so on the difficult, you know, times, or, or you know, when you're tired and you you can't get up for fajr, and you like, you know, all of these things, whatever, that that image it comes to my mind is that's where that's what it's all for. That's where I want to get to. So um, it gives that extra a bit of motivation. Do you think that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala consoled you during your time in prison with sending you dreams? to give you yaqeen and certainty yes yes definitely i mean there was there was i actually saw um i think i saw the amount i saw that i was going to be extradited and i saw the exact amount of time that i was going to spend in prison um i saw it like uh, seven years before it actually happened i saw that in a dream i, I mean I'm, I'm not going to share that now that's something that inshallah i'll, I'll share um at, at, at a later point, but that is something uh, um, that's something I've written about, and I, and I will share inshallah. And and how would you? F I mean, when you felt these dreams, um, how did it make you feel? Like you, you, did you, you you suddenly when you see a dream like that, like when you see a, a prophet, for example, um, you forget where you are. You forget what you are going through. It's like it reminds me of when the Prophet was going through hard times and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took him on the on the, the Burak, on the horse, he took him up to uh, he took him to Jerusalem and he took him up to the heavens. And he did that at a difficult time. And it's sort of like when you see something like that, you are taken out of your your little existence. It could be a little prison cell and there's a toilet in the corner and um it's banging and shouting all around you and you're facing extradition and the u.s wants you and all of these things but um allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes you out of that and it's like he's telling you that what you worried about i'm still in charge i'm still with you and the world is bigger than the hardship that you are going through so consolation and comfort those words are definitely understatements what what an effect something like that has uh, has on you I mean, one of my close friends actually, uh, he was, uh, he just came out of prison for um, also what would be um, a case where perhaps it was injustice as well. And um, he, he was telling me something that um, during his four or five years in prison, because I saw him before he went to prison as well, and during his time in prison, he found that um, his Iman was very high because, at least for his case, he was with the Muslim chaplain, he was learning Arabic, he was in his cell, he was working out, memorizing Quran, he was fixated on his own goals and he was not distracted by dunya, at least from his perspective. Uh, perhaps it's not the same for everyone in prison, but I mean, I mean, for you particularly, it looks like to me that you benefited a lot from the spiritual lessons that you learned while in prison and connected to Allah. I mean, could you elaborate on that a bit more? I think. Um... One of the ways to measure your relationship with Allah or your where you are in your deen um, is to ask yourself the question that if I was to die right now, am I ready to go? So you would get that feeling if you if you're on Hajj, for example, you know if you're in the middle of Hajj, you'll be like it wouldn't bother you if you were to die right there. 
it wouldn't bother you at all, for example. Um, or if you're in Allah's path or something like that. So, um, so that is something which in prison I would get that feeling. I don't get that feeling now. I still feel that, okay, you know, I'm not ready to go yet. There's lots that I need to do and I wish this was better. I wish that was better. But in prison, it was a case of I was completely at peace that I was trying my best and um, and I was in prison for, for Allah's sake, not that I, you know, committed a crime or harmed someone. And um, so it's 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 quite difficult to articulate. And I think the only way to, to, I think, again, I keep coming back to this, that someone who's going through a, a hardship, whether it's marital problems, whether it's uh, mental health problems, whether it's a, a disease or, or cancer or bereavement or sickness or or a disability, someone who's going through these things, that is something that they would relate to, that when you are going through those things, then the, the du'as that you make, they come from your heart. They're, they're not just um, coming from your lips, they're coming from somewhere deeper because they're coming, um, they're coming from pain. Um, so, yeah, and there were times in, in prison where times were, there were times that were harder and there were times that were easier but um, definitely the times that were harder and that in desperation when I made dua to Allah, he always answered. I can't think of a single time that he did not answer. I mean, perhaps this would be a bit uh, too hypothetical or in fact not possible, um, but you mentioned how given the hardship that you had, it caused you to cry to Allah SWT sincerely and those du'as to be accepted. Um, I mean, how could we avoid that in the sense that when we go through ease, how do we snap out of it? Because perhaps we can use the ease to get close to Allah as well. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Because it looks like there's there's two ways in that sense. When you're going through hardship, obviously you're propelled to make dua because you're in desperation. Can we not mirror that also in ease? You can try, but you probably won't be able to. You know, you can try. Um, I think at times of of at times of ease. The more grateful you are to Allah, then um, it's like the two balancing things between hope and fear or between um, patience and gratitude, that when you are undergoing the hardship, you have patience. And I just want to say that patience is actually the wrong word, the wrong translation of sabr. People say sabr, I'll have patience and just sit there and, you know, but sabr actually means holding out until the relief comes. It doesn't mean patience. So you'll find, for example, you'll find in a in someone's undergoing a hardship or, or there's a woman and she's getting battered by her husband and she goes to some sheikh and the sheikh says, oh, have patience. You know, that's not what patience is. Patience is you do something about it and you wait for Allah while you are handling your particular situation, for example. Um, so the, the, the two extremes between being grateful be grateful when things are easy for you because when you are grateful and give a lot of sadaqah and that's something that one of my relatives uh, reminded me about is when things are good for you keep giving lots of sadaqah and sadaqah is not just financial it's not just financial uh, it could be a good word it could be encouraging someone it could be helping someone there's many types of, of sadaqah keep giving sadaqah as that protects you it's sort of extinct there's a hadith that the the hidden sadaqah extinguishes the anger of the Lord and it protects calamities from uh, from coming towards you. So do that when things are good for you. Um, the dua, if I'm honest with you, I don't think, I don't, not, I mean, others may have a different experience, but I don't think in my life I've ever made a dua um, in times of relative ease that has been as sincere and as desperate as uh, during times of, uh, of, 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 of despair. Barakallah fikum for that. Um, so to recap for those listening, was sadaqah, give sadaqah, and um, and sadaqah can be multiple different things that you could do, not just giving uh -huh. money, uh -huh. could be teaching, could be other forms of sadaqah. Um, and that should also, wouldn't, it wouldn't be to the same level perhaps in, des in terms of desperation uh -huh. in making dua in times of difficulty as well. Um, so barakallah fikum for that. If we could, inshallah ta'ala, if I could kindly ask you, um, because we're going into month of Ramadan, Ramadan is is back, is just one month away. In fact, just less less, less than one month away. Um, what advice would you give 
for us going through Ramadan? How can we prepare for Ramadan? Any any top three, any lessons we can we can take with us for that month? Um, so there's there's um, before I do that, there's just a couple of things if I may share. A couple of a couple of stories that I want to sort of what we spoke about just to help maybe might help uh, bring it to um. To, to life. May I do that? Are we okay? Yeah, yeah, time? sure, okay. sure, inshallah. No problem. So, we are talking about the last point we were talking about, uh, uh, the du'as. Um, to give you an example, there was so you know, there's times where you want something from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you make du'a for it. Um, you keep making du'a, you keep making du'a. It's something that you want at some point in the future. Like, like, okay, you need it maybe next year, or you're looking for a job, you need it, you know, it's going to come, or you're looking to move house, or you're looking to buy a car, you're looking to get married, whatever, whatever it is. But sometimes you have a du'a and you need that answer, you need Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to respond to it right now. Like right now, meaning now, not, not next week, not like on Friday, not on the, uh, in two days time, you need him to respond uh, right there and then. And I remember that when I was fighting my case in America, I was in this U US Supermax prison, I was in isolation. And um, I would spend eight, nine hours of legal visits uh, every day. Then I'll go back to my cell and I'll do some more work. And then the whole thing would start again. So the legal assistant, she came to, to visit me and she said that the government or the prosecution, they have filed this letter to the court in your case and um we need to respond to it so i didn't actually i just briefly looked through it and i thought okay i know what i need to do and i gave instructions to the assistant then when i got back to my cell i remembered that there is one document that my lawyer has to use to respond to this and the deadline was in the morning so in a normal case what would you do you just pick up the phone just phone your lawyer or whatsapp or email her but i don't have a phone I don't have internet connection. I have phone access three times a week for 15 minutes each, which has to be pre-booked a week in advance. And I've already used my quota for the for the uh, for that week. Um, so, how do I get the message to my lawyer that she needs to consult that document? And when we say documents, there's probably about 12. I think something like. Um, uh, something like 12 million documents in the case. So how do I tell her that that is the document that she needs to, you know, she needs to consult? So what I did is, um, so I couldn't phone and there's no point asking the lieutenant because I've asked before and he hasn't, he said, I don't have the authority to give you an extra phone call. I thought, let me ask anyway. So he came around on his, on, on his, uh, when his shift started and I asked him and he said, I'm sorry, I don't have the authority to do that. And it's, eight o'clock in seven o'clock in the evening you know there's no one higher than me that i can ask anyway then i thought let me ask if there's another prisoner who i trust who by chance may be having a legal visit this evening and i could pass the message on to him to pass it on to his lawyer who would pass it on to my lawyer so that was quite unlikely because those i mean i was next to death row and uh, and everyone in that prison was a convicted prisoner, so they would get a legal visit, if that, maybe once or twice a year. Most people hadn't, would, did not get legal visits. So again, I asked that question, and the people I trusted, the prisoners, none of them had um, had that. So then I'm stuck, and it was a very important part of the case. So at that moment, I. You know, then I basically I raised my hands to Allah and I said, "You have to help me now." That, you know, I'm stuck. I can't do anything. I can't ask a prisoner. I can't um, uh, make a phone call. I can't send a letter. There is no way for me to tell my lawyer that you need to look at that document. So I said, Allah. I said, you have to help me now. I said, you have to tell her to look at that document. So I made that du'a and I went to sleep. Next morning, the legal assistant came and she said, here, here's the response to the court that your lawyer uh, filed. And when I read that response, she wrote it better than if I had written it myself. So later that afternoon, my lawyer came herself and I asked her, I said, what made you write this response? And she said, I'll say it was like 10.30 at night and I was uh, on my sofa 
and I had all these documents and I now had to respond to this and I was just going through the laptop looking at the files and trying to figure out how I'm going to respond to it and for some reason I just went into a particular folder and I started looking through that and then I found this particular document and um, that document had everything that I needed to respond to this and that's what I did and that was the exact time that I made that dua that she you know she was sitting 100 miles away or 50 yeah 90 miles away that she was led to in order to, to do that that happened a few times so that's an example where you know if you make that dua where you're desperate then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he always answers and that, that was without phone without text message without social media it Nothing. was a form of communication directly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yeah Allah was and, the one and, who responded that's right and the other thing is that there's no privacy concerns as well because uh, nowadays people have privacy concerns they want to use whatsapp signal and <laughs> telegram there's no privacy concerns because my privacy was protected and i was able to convey that message to her uh, um you know he passed the message on yeah allah subhanahu wa ta'ala passed it on subhanallah subhanallah i mean do you have any more of those amazing stories uh, um is it? so there's one more and this was in the Ramadan of 2009 um, actually happened on the 19th of Ramadan 2009 and I was in HM prison uh, Long Larton which is in the UK in Worcestershire and I was going through a very difficult um, period during that Ramadan like one of the hardest periods I think of the it, it was a very very difficult uh, period and um, I was struggling a lot and so 19th of Ramadan, so I, I went to, uh, in, in that particular prison, I had means of, a, of an alarm clock. So I, I went to sleep. And when I woke up for Suhoor, like I think 2.45 or something like that, the moment I woke up, there was this strong smell of perfume in my entire cell. And this was a special perfume, which I had, I recognized this because I smelt it twice before. So the first time I smelt this perfume was during the war in Bosnia when there were brothers that were Shaheed and this smell was coming from their blood. And it was coming from the whole area where they were. And the second time I smelt this was at the gates of the graveyard at, in the Medina of the Battle of Uhud, where the martyrs of the Battle of Uhud are, uh, um, are buried. Um, I think scholars and people of knowledge, they, they did, uh, mentioned to me that smells like that indicates the presence of angels because um when angels they come then they bring their own sense uh, uh with them and it was something which is pretty unique it's, it's out of this world it's not you know it's better than calvin klein and and boss and whatever <laughs> this is this is on a next level so i opened my eyes and and obviously in prison we don't have we don't have perfume i opened my eyes and my cell is full of this this smell so anyway i mean i was like wow so i i got up and you know i made wudu and, and, and i prayed and i had my suhoor and i went to sleep then in the morning i mentioned to there was a brother who was next to me and in the morning we were just talking i mentioned to him i said hey you know last night i got up at suhoor and i smelled this smell and he said to me and that brother he would he would like pray all night he wouldn't go to sleep you know so um he said, strange that you say that because I was praying last night, a short time before uh, Fajr. And while I was praying, a light shone out from the, the, the wall, like onto me for a few moments, and then it went away. And so I joked to him, I said, so what must have happened is that the angel was probably coming to visit you, but because where he because the entrance to the unit is from my side, so he came and he passed through my cell in order to, uh, to, to, to go to you. But something like that was um, very comforting. That only happened once in those 11 years. And it was something very comforting. It's like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was trying to tell me that, um, you know, just you just, just hold out and everything's going to be okay. And, and you know, you're not alone in this. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, um, for people that haven't experienced uh, experiences like this before, even to a lesser degree, they may they may come with a, a little bit of skepticism in terms of is this even possible uh -huh. but um i mean obviously i don't have that because alhamdulillah you know i've i've seen things as well 
and 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 I've, I, you know it's it's amazing subhanallah but what would you say to that you know for people that have you know so it's may, quite... may come with the level of skepticism regarding have you know have you felt the presence of an angel i mean is that you know so so yeah. so quite quite um so it's quite interesting you say that because i think a couple of years back there was a uh, non-muslim researcher from new york who is a researcher in new york university in the field of of like terrorism studies jihad studies foreign fighters so he came to he's as part of his research he was doing research into um like uh if you will for want of a better words like supernatural experiences or miracles experienced by um you know mujahideen in, in the field of war so he came to ask me about some of my personal experiences and i relate to him a number of these personal experiences um which he was quite fascinated by and one thing i said to him i said i have never had a diagnosis of psychosis uh, in my life i said i've i've never been like uh, declared insane or out of my thing so and specifically when i had those experiences it wasn't just me who had it it was other people who had those experiences uh, as well i mean for the for someone who is a, a skeptic about it i mean good luck they can you know it doesn't it doesn't change the, the reality um and um you know it's it's it happened i saw it i smelt it i experienced it um and there's i think there's a lot of people who would um in their own i think in their own experiences i mean i had a friend who um uh, someone i mean i've known people that have died or passed away people that have died away after very painful cancers and their family members say how they would say that you know sometimes they would go there at odd times and there would be like the smell of perfume in their hospital room for example so these things are part of aldean and they're, they're you know they're real there's something personal i mean i'm not um i'm not forming an islamic giving an islamic fatwa or, or passing a judgment on it but uh, this is an experience that happened to me and and there's no one that can refute that because it happened to me i experienced it barakallah fikum i think there's um lots of scholars have talked about this subject as well um, and um, it definitely is, you will find it amongst many books. Um, so, Barakallah Fikum for that. Sheikh, um, could I ask you one last question actually? Um, we haven't missed anything out, I don't think. Have we missed anything out? No, just, just, your, just before I cut you off, just still those yeah. three points that you asked. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about, yeah, so I was going to ask you about those three points. I mean, Ramadan's around the corner. Uh, right. could, you, could you provide like maybe three points or maybe four points? uh you know tips tricks or things to bear in mind lessons whatever you, you may have in store inshallah i think the first thing i would say is try your best given your circumstances we come from a culture of where shame is a big thing where you are not allowed to fail you're not allowed to make mistakes and anything less than perfection is unacceptable and this is not the way of the Prophet Muhammad and this is not what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he accepts from us. Try your best in your circumstances. So on the one hand, you've got a guy sitting in a prison cell where he's got no distractions, he's alone, he's by himself. Of course he can make dua with you know with more heart and more concentration. Then you have a mother of five children, you know, aged from like zero to, to, to twelve. All of them have schools to go to. They have their antics or, or sleeping in the night, not getting up. And this poor woman has to like cook for them. And then she has to do all, all of these things. And so part of her thinks that, you know, what sort of Ramadan am I going to get? You know, it's just going to be, you know, cleaning nappies and, and talk, doing school runs and things like that. Um, you have you have a doctor who is working, a junior doctor who's working like 40 hour shifts. Um, constantly on the go what type of ramadan are, are they supposed to have it's about trying your best in your circumstances and knowing that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge you for your the quality of what you do and the sincerity of what you do and not the quantity of it even if because of your circumstances even if you're only able to read one page of quran a day that's all you're able to do as well as the fasting and the prayers or, or whatever but you do that with sincerity, then you will be more rewarded than someone who finishes the Quran 10 times 
but uh, there is something lacking in this sincerity. So try your best and don't compare yourself to others because everyone's circumstance is, uh, uh, is, uh, is different. Try your best according to your own circumstance. So that's the first thing that I would say. Um, the second thing I would say is, um, is to do the acts of worship and things that others don't do. And a lot of people forget certain things that are worship. So the standard things everyone does, everyone reads more Quran, everyone fasts, everyone you know gives food and you know dates and all that to the neighbors, or everyone does all these things. One of the things, for example, that I do, obviously I couldn't do in, in prison, I didn't have the means to, but one of the things uh, that I tried to do is when Ramadan is announced, I will record an audio message to people that I know and I haven't probably communicated with them for a year. And it will be a short 20 second audio message for that person with their name, um, greeting them for Ramadan and just letting them know that I'm thinking about them and I pray they have a wonderful Ramadan. You know, nowadays people have these forwards that they send, you know, you've got this like moon and then you've got like some stars coming around or for, for Eid al-Abha, you've got this like little goats hanging around or you've got these cats singing Eid Mubarak and all that stuff and people just forward it. I mean, people are getting lots of these, but to get an audio note from for someone you haven't spoken to for a year. So what benefit do you get from that when that person so they've got 500 messages of like congratulations and greetings for Ramadan. And one of them is a personalized audio note with their name on it. So that night when they make dua for someone, guess whose name's going to be at the top of that list. So, you know, it may take you a bit of time, but these are things that these are like acts of worship that, uh, for example, helping people um, or even not just helping people, even cheering someone up, sending people an uplifting message or doing something like that which is things that people don't normally do and so try to do some of those things that people don't normally do um, and that would make your Ramadan a little bit special and the third thing that I wanted to say is Ramadan is the month of the Quran so try to read as much Quran as you can try to do a little bit uh, better if you're not able to recite the Quran then Try to make an effort to read or listen or read it in English. If you are already reciting the Quran, but you have never finished a, the, the Quran in in, um, uh, in Ramadan, try to do it. And that I, I, there's a story that I that I remember when I say that. It's one of the prisons I went to when I first got there. Within a couple of weeks after me, there was this other uh, prisoner who came, and he was he's a Muslim prisoner. He was not that practicing. He was smoking. He was listening to music. He wasn't really regular in his salah. Um, and but his heart was good. Um, so two or three months after that, and as it happened, this prisoner was. Um, I mean, if you've seen that movie, The Shawshank Redemption, where everyone in prison is innocent, so he actually was innocent. And I know that because all of his co-defendants, uh, they told me that this guy is uh, is innocent. Um, and he had nothing to do with the, you know, with the case. So, um, so anyway, so what happened is that um, when Ramadan came, I said to him, I said, look, you know, you're here and you're in this situation. And have you, when was the last time you read the Quran from start to finish? And he said, when I was a kid, like 20, you know, 25 years ago. I said, you know, try to do it. Do you think you could do it? It will take you about half an hour and you could do like, you could do it in 10 minute segments, do 10 minutes in the morning, in the morning, 10 minutes in the afternoon, 10 minutes in the evening, and you would have got your juice done for the day and you would finish it. And he said, okay, I'll try. And he did it. And that Ramadan, this guy, he read, he said for the first time since he was a kid, he completed the whole Quran in Ramadan. And thereafter, he continued to do that every every year that he was in prison for I think, 10 years or, or something like that. So try to do if you can if you're able to and if you can complete the quran once try to do it if you can do it more times um try to do it more times but i would say don't overdo it i mean you read these stories of imam shafi used to complete the quran 60 times in ramadan and uh, imam such and such would recite it 30 times i remember one prison that i was in one this uh, detainee unit there was a muslim brother that was next to me 
I think one Ramadan he completed the Quran 10 times. Um, my record, I think, was five times, but it, I was completely drained. And it got to the point where I wasn't actually enjoying it. And I just felt that I've done it five times, but it's just the feeling isn't there. The heart isn't there. I'm like, I, I was getting like, it was feeling like a burden to me. So, uh, um, and even that brother who did it 10 times, I think the next year, then he went down to like three or something like that. So I did it five times that year, but then after that, I went down to about, I think, two or three or something like that. But even if you can just do it once, you know, and do something, if you've never done it before, if you have never completed the Quran, start to finish in one month, this is your chance to do it. You know, just, just try to get it in and you'll feel so much good. If that's the only thing you achieve this Ramadan, in addition to the fasting and everything that you complete a Quran, you know, you'll be laughing at the end of it. You'll be great, grateful and you, you won't look back at your Ramadan and think that, you know, I could have done more. You would have done a lot. Barakallah fikum for that. Um, I, I'm just thinking, I think we'll have to end it on that note, Shanatan. I'd just like to, you know, uh, thank you. Barakallah uh, fikum. You know, thank you for coming for this, uh, for this session and to discuss uh, what seems, just seems to touch my heart and I can imagine our viewers and listeners the same as well because it it, it 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 shows to me something deeper than just talking about actions it's more about the state of your heart uh and being sincere and nothing is more sincere except being in a position where you're illegally or uh, what's the word unfairly Unjust, detained unjustly unjustly, unjustly yeah. detained you've got nowhere to go to you form you you make lots of dua you are steadfast in ibad you know these are all kinds and you're witnessing you know miracles your dreams you know there are certain things that excuse excuse like uh, that show a level of sincerity and 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 uh, to see the fruits of that it just reminds me and i can imagine our viewers as well it reminds us that perhaps we need to switch our mindset a bit think a bit more about sincerity more about doing things with a pure heart and i think that's very important um, and I, f I feel like that uh, listening to this conversation. I never felt like this for a very long time. So uh, I really do appreciate this. Um, so, Barakalafikum, on behalf of Roots of Conversations, I'd like to thank you once again for coming on for this conversation. And for those li listening, inshallah, ta make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. We've got Apple Podcasts, um, Spotify, um, I think Podcasts is iTunes, sorry. We've on we're on a range of uh, platforms, basically. Just follow all the platforms and um, spread the word. And may Allah make us all from those who are steadfast in Ramadan Actually make us from those who reach and uh, reach to see the Ramadan as well Ameen Rabbul Alameen Subhanakum bihamdik Wa nashadu wa la ilaha la ant Wa nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk Wa la'asr inna l'insana fi khusr Illa ladina amanu wa amnu salihat Wa tawasab al-haqib wa tawasab al-sabr Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh